you've read the book, Tommy, but we were chatting about it here when we were duck hunting last week, but about, about the in the Kingdom of Ice. That's the USS Jeanette back in 1879, um, a three-year expedition. There's 32 men went on it. This is an Arctic, you know, in the, they called it the, the, the golden age of discovery when they were trying to find the, the North Pole and they were trying to find, they had a theory, the, the French and the British and the Americans and the Russians, they all had this theory that there would be warm water or a warm water passage, like a mythical uh, lake, warm water lake at the North Pole. And there were many expeditions went there, and 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 many many never returned. What gave him that idea that they all agreed on? <laughs> this guy named August Petterman <laughs> was a, it just making up a, rumors. He was a cartographer out of Germany who was a, kind of a lead thinker on that, and he had never been, but he'd made a lot of maps and had read a lot about it, and was pretty convinced that there is this. Um, swell or this undercurrent that ran really deep in the ocean that ran north and ultimately oh. would keep a passage open. So I think that was the northwest mm-hmm. passage or northeast. I can't remember which one he proposed. But and his idea was that it would keep it warm enough for that would be a route in. And then at the top of the world um, is the polar sea, which would be like a warm huh. sea surrounded by the ice. And so that mm-hmm. was... He was, I don't know if he's the one that coined it or not, but I remember reading The Kingdom of Ice, like you had mentioned. Yeah. Wow. He was a, I've never heard they, of this. They took a lot of his word for it, and the whole expedition was based off a lot of those principles or um, sure. thoughts that, that any, might be waiting for him up there. Any chance that this is like a really good elaborate joke? And he like was <laughs> sending like, these from multiple countries. Like I got you stuck up there for two years in ice. Well, two years is getting away, <laughs> getting off lightly. Cause, yeah. You know, some of them stuck there for three or more years. Wow. Okay. That, that's on. a Sorry, common thread to... of these tall ships. They went up there, and these, you know, these men, these crews, 30, 40 men on a crew, and then many times they're only like, you know, the whole ship sung. They all died, or if they did return, it's like five or six limp back. You know, missing legs and toes and hands and, and noses years later, ears. Yeah. Only a great yeah. joke. Because <laughs> oh, of the, just the cold. The, frostbite you know and the hunger and then the scurvy there's another curse it's like if, if you're losing your fingers and your nose just dropped off <laughs> and you're having trouble hearing your buddy because because you, your ear your left ear is gone as well and then and now you got bloody scurvy you know <laughs> but and there's mice- not a lemon to be found no no wow. yeah so yeah. they, they well, had it anyway. I was reading in the yeah, excerpt here again of the book last night, just to brush up on my memory on it. And I opened up the book to the right to the paragraph where he was saying, "This morning we boiled four of our boots." <laughs> <laughs> that was on the U.S. Jeanette. There's 33 went, and there was something like um, only t- nine or ten survived. Yeah, but they were down to eating their boots. What time was this? What Time period. This was um, in the eight late 1800s. How were they boiling water up there? Well, they they would grab they would get enough um, scrap from their wrecked boat. Oh, they wrecked and like burned every piece of furniture and everything wow. they could salvage. Mm-hmm. But but fuel was a real problem. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, like for instance, this trip, this um, the Kingdom of Ice one. I think it's that George DeLong was the commander they they left from san francisco with a lot of like uh, a lot of excitement around yeah. this trip and at that time it was interesting it was kind of before 
people got really interested in out that was like the outer space of that era. Like sure. The Arctic exploration was this unknown vast World. land that no yeah. one knew anything about and there was so much um excitement built around it. Um but they had left and you know the 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 goal is to get up there and see if the polar sea exists and be the first to reach the actual North Pole. Um and you know they they pack enough supplies to anticipate being gone, you know, two years. And this trip, I think they they're like three months into their trip and they're locked up in ice already. And oh now they they stayed in ice mm-hmm. for well, I think it was a a year and a half trapped locked. in that um, trapped in this one piece of floating ice. Then you just have to wait till okay. So you're three months into your trip. You want to make it, you know, <laughs> thousands more miles north, but you have to wait all the way until a, at a minimum one year from that day to. To have the ice summer lets you go to, again. Yeah. When they're stuck in the ice, they traveled, like historians have looked at it, they traveled like 1,500 miles while in the ice. And then by the time they got let go by the ice, they were back where they where they started. <laughs> like, oh, there's no but, ice out here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> making progress, boys. The whole time they're... They're freezing cold the and starving, and they got rat, and they brought rats on board, you know, inadvertently. Mm-hmm. So the rats were, you know, were eating their supplies as well. Jeez. And um, no, they suffered like hell. Then there's another great book I read, The Island of the Blue Foxes, and um, these people endured so much. It's a, it's staggering. And then we read Madhouse at the End of the Earth. That's another um, great Arctic voyage. And they're all they're all the ones that survived, so we could read their journals and and learn about them. You know the horror they went through mm-hmm. um, of cold, but the staggering thing is how they could how they could survive the cold. You yeah, know, minus forty, minus fifty, minus seventy degrees, and they were hunkered down in in tents. You know because they had to abandon the boats. They were crushed. And um, and yet, and they were wet a lot of the time. You know, they caught seals um, in the Arctic mm-hmm. if they were lucky, and and birds, and um, and then in the South Pole, like you know, um, Scott and Amundsen and um, Shackleton. You know, mm-hmm. they ate a lot of penguins mm-hmm. in the South Pole for the but the fatty you know animals. But that was about you know that was when the going was good. The rest of the time they were down to like eating lichen and 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 boots. and and their boots and mm. their coats. That's another report. Their dogs. They were they ate all the, dogs, all the dogs. That's for sure. You know, mm-hmm. and in fact they even planned to, like when they when they bought on the supplies for the um for the trip in the uh, uh the the book called the um Island of the Blue Foxes. Um, Day three, all the dogs are already yeah, eaten. Yeah, they bought them on, and their plan was we'd use them as much as we can, and then when we're done with them, we'll eat them. We'll yeah. eat them. So they were a food source. And well, I think those ships, I mean, let's say they're locked in, and that's where they're they're living out of that, and they you know set up stuff around it so they get off the boats during the day and whatever. Mm. But the the real challenge is when these boats inevitably give in from all the the ice crushing in Impacting. on it and expanding, and these boats are super reinforced, but they sink eventually it gives in yeah. if it doesn't get out of the ice and that's this Jeanette went under and then okay at that point you know it was You're just kind of a ice. hurry to get everything off the boat that you need but they're not really they know that they now have to walk hundreds and hundreds of miles to try to get to Siberia or wherever they're trying to reach um, and 
now you're just walking across ice at this point are they still trying to go to the north pole i think once the boat goes down they're done oh okay. they try to get back to land but it's still not a failure oh. somehow oh. <laughs> if they make it's it back, crazy it's a successful but the, trip but the resilience of the human mind and body is like staggering you know today we have we have a bad day if like um we got poor wi-fi reception you know or if that is yeah they wouldn't know about that right you know or if you know we we only got like three choices of you know coffee at at, at the cafe instead of you know our normal 20 choices that's a bad day for us but these people endured you know just hell Mm -hmm. Uh, starvation and cold and wet and it was dark too you know they endured months and months of darkness never seeing the light it's not just a day of bad either. It's no. for months on end. Yeah. They'd be trying to trying to live. Right. And then they and they and the other thing is they never reverted to cannibalism. I mean there was one account, um, but very they were very strict on that. And you would think that, you know, you would think you'd be pretty damn quick. Yeah. Because <laughs> you don't want the heaviest chubbiest person in your crew to lose too much weight or it's like it's going to defeat the whole purpose of cannibalism it's like why eat him when he's thin it's like we better like if you're going to be all in for like for surviving you're better to knock off the chubby guy right away you know what i mean while it's worthwhile yeah and, and he's probably He's probably okay with that too. He'll understand. Yeah, he knows. Like, Team player. He knows. <laughs> what do we? He knows that's why he's on the trip. Um, but anyway, the thermoregulation, you know, because that, that's what's really crazy. You, you know, shivering is one of the great compensatory things to keep our body temperature. And they would walk and um, keep themselves walking, you know, all night and try and keep awake because if you went to sleep, you'd die. But this is for months and months and months. And so there's a point where shivering just stops and they and you just get, you know, severely cold. Mm-hmm. And, and many died, but many didn't. And that's just, uh, it's unbelievable. They fell through, they got wet, um, and then constant cold. So people... And this metabolic cost, you know, of, of burning energy and catabolism, meaning, you know, chewing up your muscle to create heat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really the people's, our, peop, our ability to, to, to persevere and survive is, is unboggles the mind. And that, that's one of the things we want to talk about tonight, thermoregulation, you know, because it mm-hmm. applies, well, to us and it applies to our, our animals that we're farming to feed us and live off you know it's a big deal thermoregulation whether it's preventing from getting too cold or too hot it's like goldilocks we want to keep them just in the sweet spot you know mm-hmm. so yeah yeah like being here in fargo we can take one step outside in winter you know and think okay you have 20 minutes and you'd be mm-hmm. dead but mm-hmm. they've yeah there's so many of these stories like you mentioned a lot of them do Mm-hmm. die but some don't some can endure these crazy feats of cold I guess just yeah hanging on so there's some epigenetic mm-hmm. effects i think there's some adaptation they've documented some populations like the inuit you know have a genetic advantage um mm-hmm. in terms of these um special enzymes that can help um with with um with cold survival um 
and there's a normal distribution across people that are more sensitive to cold than others. You'll know that among even even within a family, I think you'll find people that mm-hmm. are more tolerant than others. But but it's truly staggering, you know, how they could endure and and make it through it. Mm-hmm. You know, so and then there's on the other side, on, you got heat. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Dad. No, I was going to say, and then on the other side, we've got heat, um, you know, issues too. But, um, and that's where we're, you know, as humans and mammals and most of the animals we're feeding are are what called, you know, endothermic, mm-hmm. meaning we, we keep our body weights at a very, a very narrow range. Um, and that's where all our metabolic processes are healthy and our and and we function best. And then there's another group of animals which are are not the great, are not much of a uh, really. We're not farming them much. They're called ectotherms. But some of them we would like fish in aquaculture. Mm-hmm. That'd be ectothermic, and their body temperatures uh, reflect their environment. So if the water temperature in the Pacific, you know, if the coast of New Zealand is is um you know, seven degrees Celsius, well, that's what the fish will be, seven degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, but all the mammals would be endothermic, and same with chickens too, birds. Yeah. And um, and so we have elaborate processes to keep us in this range. And is it the same as just warm-blooded versus cold-blooded? Is that endothermic yeah, ectotherm? Or is there some subtle difference? I think in general that's basically in general, is, it's right? The, in general, they're synonyms. They're the same. But there may be some subtle difference. Yeah. Know. Yeah, cold-blooded cold. versus warm-blooded. But there's something within cold-blooded that need to be warmed back. Like, you see them sunning themselves like a snake. Yeah, like will a come snake out on a rock. Yeah. And they kind of shut down when they're right. too cold, which is so seems like a bad combination. <laughs> like, you let the environment tell you the temperature, but you also can only operate at a certain temp. Yeah, so there seems is like a level that, that they can't. Worked operate at and that's is it the same for fish they can just go at any any temperature i don't know so there's i have a few it's not quite clear to me how the cold-blooded part actually works they can just actually survive at any temperature or Mm -hmm. there's just a wider range no there's definitely be a point where it'll kill them Mm -hmm. you know on the high end and the low end but they have a big range and big range a lot of them you think about them as desert animals yeah. yeah, you know snakes and lizards and in the desert. There's a huge range. Yeah, let's Quite talk in Fahrenheit, 120 a day in the day, mm-hmm. um, like in the in the, uh, let's say in Saudi Arabia, you know, or in the deserts of the uh, the Sahel or the Kalahari, mm-hmm. or in the outback of Australia, and then at night, you know, it's um, in in Fahrenheit, it's might be 25 degrees. Mm-hmm. So they have a wide range, but the benefit of evolutionary of being um, endothermic like we are, where we carry our body temperature with us all the time, um, and we keep it in this in this range like uh, humans, our, our body temperature is in Celsius thirty seven degrees plus or minus half a degree, or in Fahrenheit that's ninety so, you know, we've adapted to, to be able to keep it like that. We, as we talk with cold, we have mechanisms like shivering, and which creates um, 
muscle agitation, very fast twitching of muscles, which creates, um, you know, cellular processes, which create more demand for, I think, ATP. And then as you as you break down ATP for energy in the from the in the cellular level, it gives off heat. Mm-hmm. So there's a way for us to you know create heat, mm-hmm. and um, and then we have our vaso, you know, constriction when we're cold, which means we we restrict blood flow uh, from the extre- so that it, from the extremities, so mm-hmm. we maintain more blood flow around our heart. Our liver, our key organs. Yeah, it concentrates so. it to protect the vital, but that's like, okay. Well, you had frostbite, didn't you, Jack? Uh, when you were pheasant hunting once? Yeah, like minor, but, but enough for it. Did you it's lose any bothered. fingers, or do you have all 10? Let me see. Um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> Just count it. But yeah, no, I, I, that, uh, I don't know if you call it, I think it was close to frostbite, if not. Frost nip. It, it, yeah. To the point where it still gets notably colder, the thumb that got really bad before. Mm-hmm. But that's part of that frostbite is, well, it occurs obviously when it's cold, but that's because all the uh-huh. blood, a lot of the blood, yeah, the vasoconstriction has been pulled yeah. to keep the vital organs going, and it's... Um, Do you know the, uh, this is a, well, we haven't really, it's on topic, I'll say, but the, um, have you heard of the dogs, like the rescue dogs and the avalanches mm-hmm. that would have a bottle of, or a little drum of whiskey yeah. to their chest? Brandy. No. So they'd go find the um, the people stuck in an avalanche with a they have a little barrel of brandy on their collar, but because you know people say you drink liquor but it warms you up. But I think the the irony there is that it's actually making your body relax. It's intentionally trying to keep all the heat to your vital organs, so it feels like you're getting warmer because that's moving back to your it, fingers. But it ends up, I think I don't know the stats it, on it, but I think it probably ended up killing more people <laughs> than it helped, even though they felt a little bit warm. Tricks the body. Yeah, I think yeah. you're something to the effect of that you you relax and so you get that warming sensation, but it's actually counter that's interesting counterintuitive. You wouldn't want that, but I yeah, there's there's Swiss Saint Bernards, yes, and they carried a brandy bottle. Yep, and for Alpine Avalanche, and and they did save you know let's say maybe thousands of people yeah. from finding them, but yeah. um. But that was saving them. The brandy, to, to your point, Jack, yeah. that's alcohol works as a, a vasodilator. Yes. So, you know, all the help that from <laughs> finding them, that was great. But then no, when the, they drink the brandy... The clock's ticking it's faster. Like, yeah. It's like... You feel warm in your chest. Yeah, yeah. But you got now, a nice dog to pet. But now you got less time. <laughs> yeah. Great. So cuddling the dog was probably their best strategy. Yeah. Anyway, so that's another. So there's a couple of body, you know, mechanisms that we have um, to to help um, us compensate for getting cold, and these kick in immediately through our. We have these um, thermoreceptors throughout throughout our body. Some are in our extremities, of course, on the skin. Makes sense, you know. You want to be able to sense the ambient temperature, but mm-hmm. others are like deep inside us in our gut and our liver and kidneys and they send signals to the hypothalamus Mm -hmm. and that's really where we have a set point like a biological set point and and the cow's set point to compare to a human i said we're at about 98 and a half degrees fahrenheit and the cows are at around 100 to 102 Mm -hmm. um a chicken broiler chicken's 105 to 107 so a little hotter Mm. um and a pig's around 101 to 103 but we're all kicking around that hundred mark, mm-hmm. plus or minus one or two. 
so you have the set point in our in our brain which which regulates it and and so the hypothalamus is what you know what kicks in through you know communication with pituitary and and hormone secretion um, kicks in all these regulatory systems which are just like miraculous you know and they're acting so fast Mm-hmm. Um, all the way from pilo erection. You know how fast your hair on your on your arms stands up or on your head. Mm-hmm. You know if you get a fright, it's like it's freaking instant. You know that, that happens. And pilo erection is a is a thermoregulatory biological um, you know um, um, system. Mm-hmm. To, to when we were hairier because we used to be hairy as hell. Some still, but most of us have lost a lot of our hair. Yeah, and um, but the but the mechanism was the pilo erection when you're cold was to trap air molecules between the hair, and then it forms an insulation by barrier st- by standing up. By standing up, yeah, trap the air hmm. molecules. So anyway, that's so that's what I mean. How fast it can happen, you know, that we're regulating things. Yeah, yeah. So where so was how does I? this relate to the uh, the agriculture and farming and I, I think well very we've talked good. a lot in different examples of regulation mm-hmm. but how does it apply to Be, yeah no, it's, that's that's a big topic in right. in in lives that we use for sure uh, is uh, heat stress or I guess both heat and cold stress mm-hmm. maybe too but mm-hmm. I hear hear more about heat stress um especially like in the news too with the I don't know if a couple of years ago I think all the the big cattle die off in um kansas, kansas with, yeah. with primarily due to heat stress is that right mm-hmm. so yeah talk a little bit is this a you know uh, even as someone who's not really in the industry it's something you're aware of so is it a pretty big topic and yeah yeah, yeah. yeah no it's um that's kind of where we wanted to go with this is okay we've read a lot of books on arctic exploration and they're instant, super interesting and we we like that topic but um the thermoregulation piece is on, you know, all producers' minds, no matter the livestock that they're dealing with or what they're handling with. But um, if we if we think cattle, you know, that one might come to mind more for people because you can drive by and you can see them outside on a hot summer day. They might be in a pen. They have black hides. Sun's shining down on them. They're kind of you know a lot of them in the pen. Um, it's a it is a big concern for every industry about um you know from a animal welfare but also performance aspect um performance standpoint they just you know if they're heat stressed stress never implies good stress is a energetic demanding you know um, there's a lot of energy that goes towards any form of stress and heat and cold stress would be no exceptions for that and so um, there's they try to put numbers to it it might be 900 million dollars or 900 billion I don't even remember in animal agriculture each year that are lost to some form of heat stress and so there's mitigation practical things set up everywhere to, you know, try to combat this. Um, but you said in Kansas with cattle, there's, you know, quite a lot that um, that died a couple of years ago with a big heat event that came through and caught them on a really still day. And um, and unfortunately, things like that do happen. Um, but it's not just in the hot spaces that we think about it. It's all kind of that delta of temperature. The change in temperature is, mm. um, is quite uh, important. And so in Fargo here, we can experience pretty hot days in the summer too and there would be um, potentially just as much heat stress you know Um, maybe not exactly that much but it's 
cattle in the north definitely still have, um, you know, they're exposed to heat stress and react to it. And so um, it's, uh, you can't really get away from it. Um, there's areas that are obviously more prone to it and less prone to it. Uh, so think of uh, humid climates is, is worse. And so one of the humans, we have a lot of sweat glands. Mm-hmm. And the point of sweat build up on your skin and now you've got something to cool off, evaporative cooling that occurs with that. But as relative humidity goes up and reaches the saturation point of 100, there's no room for moisture to be added to the air. Mm. And so if you get to 100 degree or 100% humidity, you're not going to lose a single, you just, you just can't. There's yeah. no water will be removed from your skin. And so mm. um, cattle, while they don't rely on sweating as much as humans do, they do have sweat glands and that is part of their, um, you know, their heat abatement strategy that they've evolved to have. Um, Panting would be a main one for them, um, so that's it's not exactly uh, sweating, but it is the point still remains that if it's humid out, getting dissipating your heat is that much harder because mm-hmm. you can't have the evaporative cooling. And so humid areas definitely are more prone to it, um, and this is just on the heat side, sure. but this would apply to to chickens, to to pigs, to sheep, to cattle. What are so what are the other abatement for cattle? It's mostly panting. Mm-hmm. And then, so panting would be a big one. Um, that's you know elevated heart rate and respiration rate, and the the point there is is hopefully the ambient temperature is cooler than um, than the air they're exhaling, and so that's a you know it, it's getting rid of heat by exhaling, bringing in cooler with inhaling. Sure. That would be one of their ways. Um, standing, standing, yep. Which shade seek yep. shade if they can. Yep. Hmm. That's why we need to provide shade. And you'd think they would if they're on. You'd think that spreading out would be a so that's a that's kind of a confusing one with with cattle. It still isn't completely they get, known. They they, get they together. They tend they're... to group up. And is that a a fly's response or is it a stress response? Because they're a prey animal. If they're feeling stressed, are they feeling threatened? And then naturally huh. they want to fall into herd settings. You know, um, but from a heat standpoint, that's not ideal. So let's out. think of a feedlot pen. They're t- kind of normally sloped down. They have a grade to them. Yep. They'll typically be a hot day, and if they are going to be in that pen and they're stressed, they'll all be standing kind of down at the bottom of it hmm. um, and grouped up, and so that makes them Seems potentially like more hot. More but that is what they they're doing. Um, you even see that in pasture cattle when it's super hot. A little even if there's no shade from trees, they'll they'll bunch up mm-hmm. in the pasture together. I think mm-hmm. it's a yeah, they, I think it's some of both. Maybe it's some of its flies' uh, response to get away from flies. The other is, I think maybe it is a evolutionary response of when you're stressed, feel their life threatened hmm. in some way. They want to gather together, you know, for security. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, also, drinking water, they'll drink a lot more, and that's oh, you know exchanges. That's because heat one. always moves from one gradient; it moves from hot to cold. So anything you can. You know, anything cold, cold air or conductive, um, you know, where you're touching something cold or cold water, there's a way to exchange some of those hot mm. molecules, mm-hmm. you know, and dissipate. Um, and cattle are actually interesting from that standpoint, too, where um, the gradient part that you're talking about, let's say it's hot, it's equal temperature outside of the body as it is inside during the day and the let's say in Kansas in peak summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have night cooling, you actually retain that heat and then get rid of it at night. Um, oh. But the um, 
the deaths that happen, you know, due to heat stress also are at night. Um, really? And a lot of it's because if the, if you don't get the adequate night cooling, they don't have the gradient necessary to, you know, dissipate enough heat that they kind of have been storing up across the day to get rid of it. And that does them in. So it's the days that are really, really hot, but a lot of the actual succumbing would be at, uh, at would night. be at night because they rely on night cooling. Yeah. So that's an extreme example of, of them dying from heat stress, but mm-hmm. um, and obviously one that producers are trying to avoid. But uh, beyond that, and a more conventional or between the extremes version, how does heat stress? You know, why is it okay? Let's say that you're pretty sure they're not going to die from getting so hot. Do you still pay attention to it for, is it just overall health performance and health? Mm-hmm. And what are the, what does it look like when you have kind of mild or moderate heat stress, but they're not going to die? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. And, a um, actually walking through a dairy barn is a pretty good example of how serious that these producers take it. It might be 65 degrees out, but they have the fans on full and the sprinklers going in there and they're keeping the cows cool. Um, because even at a subclinical, let's say that clinical is death, anything that is less than death or better than death, there's still negative performance outcomes from that for sure from heat stress. Um, and, and health would be a big, a big part of that. And so there's a, um, Lance Baumgart who dad, you know, quite well, um, he's kind of been a, you know, a, a pioneer on this front of quantifying heat stress and the stress portion of that, um, and the effects that it has on the animal. Um, and, and a lot of it is connected to leaky gut. And so what we were talking about before is when it's cold, you get vasoconstriction and you conserve a lot of the blood, you bring it in, bring it around your vital organs. Mm. Um, but when it's hot, you get the opposite, it, mm-hmm. you know, vasodilation and the blood goes to the extremities and it spreads it out across all your surface area. And then there's cooling that happens that way. And you get the blood away from the internal where the heat is, and then it returns a little bit cooler. Okay. But when that's happening, now you've pulled away a lot of the blood from the gastrointestinal tract. And then those cells don't get the nutrient absorption and things like that, that they need. So now you've got some potential for leaky gut, which has, you know, some, um, be- uh, well, I guess we can, LPS would be the main one that we think of that can sneak yeah. through. And, and talk, what um, is, but yeah, I know we've talked about it before, but in quick terms, what is leaky gut? It's a phrase people hear. Okay. I think, but. So when you think of your stomach and your intestines and everything, it's a barrier to actually entering your body Yep. and you think of cells. So Okay, maybe even a crowded city, there's houses that are planted side by side and they actually touch walls. So down a street, there'd be no gaps between those houses. Um, The thing of that with your cells, there should be zero gaps. They perform that protective barrier. But when there is leaky gut, it's when there's tiny gaps that have now been created between, in between the two cells. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, the only way to get in is absorption through the cell. And that's an intentional process. The, The body absorbs the things it wants. And so the only way in, in theory, should be that way. But when that breakdown starts to happen, things that aren't supposed to be absorbed can slip between the cells and not actually have to be absorbed through the cell and can wind up in the bloodstream. And um, so, like Dad said, endotoxin of LPS would be a main classic example of, Hmm. okay, if you've got LPS or LPS binding protein circulating, you've got some sort of uh, potentially a leaky gut challenge going on. So is it the concern leaking from the gut? outward or the barrier into the gut or both just yep. the general what exchange. can end up in your blood so oh, okay. if we think another way of thinking about it might be a little bit counterintuitive but 
say you swallow a piece of food and then whatever comes out the other end, none of that actually entered your body. Yep. So the your whole gastrointestinal tract is technically Sealed. outside of yep. the body. Oh, yeah. So anything that comes through that is now inside of the body. And so the main concerns would be that direction of flow coming huh. from the gut into the body. Into the body. Mm-hmm. Got it. Interesting. Okay. That, sorry. That's good summary. I know we've talked about this before, but, but the, um, on the vasodilation to get rid of heat, you know, that's why if you're exercising, you know, you got a red face as an example, mm-hmm. red hands and you get sort of flushed looking. It's the same when in all us mammals, you know, we're trying to push heat out to the skin surface so that we can evaporate the and dissipate the heat. Mm-hmm. And um, the the gut leaky gut that Tommy's talking about is the is in between those houses or the row houses. You know these cells. Our gut is only one cell thick, mm-hmm. versus our um, skin on our hands and arms is like eighteen cells thick or fourteen. I don't hold me to be exactly what it is, but it's many more than one. Yeah, sure. it's more than one. <laughs> and uh, our gut is only one cell thick, so it's so fragile. It's like rice paper. Mm. You know, it can be damaged so easy. And between the cells are something called tight gap junk, tight junctions, tight gap junctions. And there's like 50 different species of them, but you just think of them as like Velcro. So they Velcro your cells together. And, if, and when you have heat stress, and um, as Tommy said, all the blood is being pushed out to your extremities out near your skin in a way... And so when that happens, you've got to constrict somewhere or you'll lose all your blood pressure and you'll die, you know, because we've got to keep our blood pressure um, at a stable level too. So we have mm-hmm. to constrict. And where we constrict is at the gut. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you get hypoxia, You're not enough oxygen. And Tommy said nutrients to those, like those, these enterocyte cells that are very fragile. And now they start leaking you know, being damaged, and then you get these undesirable compounds leaking through into your into your portal system, meaning your blood. Now you have a, an, a massive immune response because it's you know it's like the Pac-Man sense this immediately and start attacking, you know, the invaders. Mm-hmm. And that that stress that immune response is what you know. Tommy mentioned Dr. Lance Baumgart. He's leading one in the world. Been looking at this, the cost of the immune response to heat stress, and it's just been uh, absolutely staggering. Across all species, looks like every species that's been studied, the cost is like in terms of glucose. This is really interesting because it goes back to another great book we read about called Ravenous. You know Otto Warburg, mm-hmm. who who disca- who's who's famous for the Warburg effect, like a hundred years ago or some damn thing, a German scientist. But he discovered that um, when activated, immune cells become obligate glucose users. Mm-hmm. So when they're when they're inactive, because our immune system is like is running just nice, nice and smooth all the time. It's not highly activated, but it's all it's ever vigilant. And then it can use multiple fuel sources, you know, to keep us going. But as soon as it becomes active, it switches to glucose. Hmm. And, um, and of course, you know, glucose is like the currency of, of energy in our body. And um, so it's a precious commodity. And uh, cancer cells do the same thing. When they become cancerous, tumor cells, they just, they just suck glucose like crazy. Hmm. And um, so Otto Warburg discovered this. Like I think he might have won a Nobel Prize for it, but 
If he didn't, he should have. One of his buddies was Hans Kreb from the Kreb cycle. That was one of his drinking buddies. Mm -hmm. So imagine running that company. Um, (laughs) What's the Kreb cycle? I know the... Yeah. Why do I know that? TCA. I'll let Tommy do that one. Mm -hmm. Did we talk about this on a different... Citric acid cycle. It's all kind of... Very complicated. for the one, but it's uh, whatever primes the body to get the energy out of, um, you know, certain carbon chains that go through. And so it gets these, um, electron, um, ultimately you need to get electrons to the, um, electron transport chain to get your ATP. And so the, um, the TCA cycle gets these reducing equivalents ready to go to enter that. Um, but yeah, Krebs is okay. the guy that kind of discovered that principle, but, um, back to your point, dad, of the yeah. immune system needing glucose, you know, glucose, it was, thought forever that when you have heat stress humans animals alike if you're really hot you don't feel like eating Mm. and so a lot of the productive performance losses have just been attributed to okay heat came they went off feed therefore they didn't perform but a lot of this uh, more recent work of well that again is lance i'm doing a lot of this it's you know it might be 35 to 50 percent is explained by drop in intake but mm-hmm. what's the other 50%? And that's this. It's the activating the immune yeah. system that's just, you know, it might be a kilo of glucose an hour or a day. I can't remember what his figure yeah, is, but it's, it's some a, it's actual a kilo like, for a cow, amount. a lactating cow is a kilo of glucose every 12 hours. So two kilos a day. Yeah. Jeez. And okay. on a metabolic weight, like uh, I've heard Lance talk about it, you know, several times, but he, I think he said, like, even with a rat or a human, pigs, Across all these species, it works out to be like one gram of glucose per kilogram of metabolic body weight. So it look, looks like it's like a, a law, hmm. you know what I mean, like a physics mm-hmm. law. And um, But the cost is just staggering in terms of um, when you're farming animals to produce food. Mm-hmm. Um, it's crazy. It, was, it wasn't expected. Normally, like Tommy said, when you, 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 know, you get hot, you don't want to eat as much. The same with people, you know, mm-hmm. just sort of lose your appetite. And um, and part of that is probably from this vaso, you know, dilation constriction at the gut. But um, but nonetheless, you just don't feel good. And the cattle and pigs and chickens, they all stop eating, you know, reduce their food. Um, and then you would think, okay, when you reduce your food intake, um, if you're carrying some body fat, you know, on us or mm-hmm. on our animals, then they'll start burning that body fat, and uh, and they'll keep growing or mm-hmm. laying eggs or producing milk. Mm-hmm. What well, turns out they don't with heat stress. Normally, if you restrict their feed, mm-hmm. they will turn to burning their body fat, their adipose fat. But in heat stress, there's no way. The immune system um, has priority because the immune system is like, I will try my best to keep you alive. Yeah. So it's like first. Hmm. And um, so you don't lose your body fat. In fact, in a phenomenon in pigs, it's called greasy pigs. In the summer months, when they're heat stressed, because pigs are heat stressed easily, um, they're not able to sweat much. They have to pant, and but it, I digress a little. But they, they, you get a lot fatter pigs in the, during heat stress, and um, so that's very interesting. And it wasn't expected that the immune system, like, um, has, was so hungry for this, like, for for this gold. You know, so that's why it ends up costing us. They don't even know the number. I see United Nations and FAO and 
they try to project how much heat stress is costing the animal agriculture industry. Um, I've seen numbers all the way up to $500 billion, hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to know because it hard has knock-on effects. Cows don't get pregnant. Pigs don't get pregnant. You know, chickens stop laying. I mean, it has Maybe. a big reproductive effect, huh. like damaging the follicles and causing spontaneous abortions. And mm-hmm. So it's not just growth. Sure. It's not just milk. Um, and it's not just body composition. You know, it's like all of these things kick in. So, and then there's an animal welfare issue. Mm-hmm. You know, these animals can become very uncomfortable to the yeah. point of even in the worst situations can die. Um, but it's incumbent on, and Tommy said that, farmers and nutritionists and veterinarians working really hard in this area trying to make car- animals more comfortable and heat mm-hmm. abatement strategies. Imagine, is it a bigger... Oh, sorry, did I cut you off? Mm-mm. Is it a bigger challenge in... Um, using back the cattle again or grazing pasture animals that are mm-hmm. uh, I think for uh, intuitively it seems like it's something you could manage probably better in in uh, poultry and swine production than than cattle for example one because they're all over the world from different latitudes but then they're not for the most time they're not confined into a shelter where you can control the temperature is that I guess maybe I'm just more exposed to cattle production, but I feel like that's where I hear about this. But it, it's definitely a conversation, or it's a thing that you're watching in in all animal agriculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm. it's for sure. A, it's for sure on all agriculture's mind. Um, but I think it is a little bit of both. One of it is when people think about it, you can't really see pigs or True. chickens when you're driving around, right? But another part of that is, is they are indoors and so there is a little bit more control but um and again i don't spend a lot of time when i say a lot i don't spend any time in pig or poultry facilities but i think they get pretty hot too they're not i mean some i'm sure are ac regulated and all that and keep them cool but i think there's some that maybe aren't as well and so um temperature still could be a concern there but um for instance cattle on pasture versus cattle in a pen um your point about having them up close to be able to do more to interfere or manipulate the heat stress or to help them out is warranted but it's also if they're out on pasture they naturally can maybe um, dissipate a little bit better anyways um but there's a lot of practices that are done in like for cattle that are in pens to sure from bedding to shades to spraying water to you know um to adding extra waters into the pens and some feed additives and nutrition manipulation and um different things like that because there's um well there's a lot of different angles that they that everyone's kind of aware of to try to help alleviate some of the burden of the heat but it's you're always going to see some sort of drop too like in in intake and performance from it but it's just mitigating it changing uh a thought that i had when you talk about uh pigs they don't sweat right you said well they have some sweat glands but they're very minimal compared to us do you know where the this is off topic, but interesting. Do you know where the you know the phrase "sweating like a pig" comes yeah. from? No, because it doesn't make sense. The, you, right. you think it's they don't sweat, like you said. Um, it comes from well, I should check on this, but I think it's from uh, iron ore production. The big vats or the oh. the big um, yeah, I'm looking at here the the big 
cauldrons. Cauldrons that they would belt down the, uh-huh. uh, the iron smelting process here. I found it. Oh, pig iron. Yes, pig iron. And then the result, <laughs> it would start to sweat on the outside. So it's actually wow. referring to that, not, 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 not the, the animal not pig. The animal. Damn, isn't that cool? So there you go. I Learn. Know that That's one. my contribution. Well like done. It's not a brother. It's not from the animal because they don't huh. sweat. Yeah, they got a few sweat glands around their muzzle, let's, but the very few. Hmm. Like humans, we have between two and four million sweat glands, and um, pigs and pigs and cattle are down around that. As far as I could read in the literature, down around that um, ten thousand. Oh. So to 20,000 glands, but we have two to four million. Wow. So we have the most sweat glands per any animal pretty much alive. Is that Lucky we talked us. about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm pretty laughs> right. Sure. I think the person I sat next to on the plane had like six million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you probably made her nervous. <laughs> <laughs> have that effect. You should have left her alone, Jack. <laughs> uh, yeah. Why do we have, I mean, it, well, why, it's how, fantastic because I'm reading, so I'm reading a so great <laughs> book at the moment. And so, yeah. thank you for that segue. The book the this book wasn't is, pre-rehearsed. I didn't yeah, know. The book is called like "Made to Run," and it's a, it's an evolutionary um, uh, thesis on on going back 1.6 million years ago, where we adapted. We made a huge uh, change in our in our uh, uh, body platform. Um, to allow us to dissipate heat, and to and and the reason for that was so that we could run, or we ran to create, to, you know, the, created the need to dissipate heat, one or the other, chicken or egg. But that was like a huge breakthrough for Homo erectus, um, 1.6 million years ago, and we are the we are absolute running machines, you know, and we don't think of that because we think we're pretty slow, and some of us are pretty slow, to be fair. Some of us aren't even good runners. Like we run pretty fun, like Kitty Wampus, and <laughs> with a big hitch and the giddy up. But anyway, who do you have in mind? <laughs> is, that, is that Jack? Is that who I have in mind? That's me. <laughs> That's Jeremy because Jeremy's not here. <laughs> Actually, Jeremy's a very smooth runner. I, I envy his style. Turns out we're we're better runners than any other animal in the world. Like we're par excellence. We can outrun a horse. We can outrun a deer. In can outrun dis- a zebra in endurance. Or? Yeah, in endurance, and that's what our ancestors did. They were they were endurance hunters, they call or persistence hunters, and um, and the way we could do that was we had to become hairless. That was one thing. Drop, get rid of all our hair, as we talked about before, um, so that we could sweat and have evaporative cooling um, to to ex- this heat exchange from a hot hot. Um, water on our skin to cooler air and then um and we and we lost we lengthened our legs we got a rotating pelvis we lengthened our neck so that our neck can um hold our head straight while we run um we had some other amazing adaptations we've narrowed our waist and um so our waist can rotate and we developed like um, longer ligaments and that, I found that pretty fascinating our Achilles heel or our ligaments in our legs they act as like we're bipedal so that's good too we're running on two instead of four and um, and when our the, the kinetic force of our body weight hitting the ground through our heel and foot you know the, the biomechanics mm-hmm. 
it can conserve 50% of that kinetic energy uh, be transferred from the impact can be transferred into our ligaments which act like a spring hmm. you know to bounce <laughs> us upward and forward so we're we're like wow. we're sublime running machines and today you know we even have modern people today that can run 100 miles oh, yeah. non-stop but our ancestors like they just start in on a trail of like a wildebeest and they're like, they're like, I want you. <laughs> the wildebeest is looking around. No, not me. It's like, come on. They're like, I got a bad hip. You're like, no, no, I'm going to have you. And then they just start, right? And they start running. It's like funny... six hours later, 12 hours later, 24 hours later, finally the wildebeest is like, I'm done. It's a funny like, visual because it wouldn't look urgent. You'd just be like, yeah, you're trying to chase start down off a wildebeest, on a jog. But you're a jog. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, like, stretch. Just, you think they stretch before that? <laughs> <laughs> the wildebeest? No, no, not the wildebeest, but the your the uncle homo, homo erectus, yeah. like the one where they lay on the I back think. and somebody lifts their foot up, like they do at the half court line in the NBA. I'm picturing them all stretching out and putting on a headband, and then just take off on a light jog because they know it's going to be like 28 hours till they yeah. finally knock them over. Well, see the other thing. You're so far away from camp too, and you've actually outrun them. Now, do you have to bring it back? Yeah, well, your family's running behind you uh, or walking. <laughs> everyone's running. Everyone's on the move. This is hilarious. <laughs> it's like a Monty Python. Well, if sketch. you think about it, you're if you're only going to run down something big, like why would you bother with a rabbit? It's like when the yeah. whole family gets there and they're all standing around a rabbit. They're like, yeah. "Geez, Dad, <laughs> it's like all that for this." No, like, no, you want to run down like a rhino. It gives yeah, nomads a different perception. It's just yeah. whenever they found like something worth chasing, the whole family went after it, and then they set up camp there. Yeah. So the re- the reason we ran we're able to run down a zebra or a horse is they they just we overcook them. Hmm. They have no way to get rid of their body heat, so they actually die of acute heat stress, like really? a heat stroke. And <laughs> but we don't. And the reasons for that is we talked a little bit, but the hairlessness. Um, we have, you know, we got great lung capacity, um, and then we also got the ability to carry water and food with us. You know, they had already 1.6 million years ago. They would use like a, you know, the the um, the intestinal pouch or paunch of an animal, you know, and tie it off for carrying water. So mm. we could drink on the go, you know, <laughs> and um, animals have have no other way to portable. Right, you know, bring with them, and and so the the sand, the famous sand hunters of the Kalahari, you know, even been documented within like ten years ago. Don't hold me to it, but like ten years ago, they're still practicing persistence hunting, and yeah. the abos in <laughs> Australia persistent hunted kangaroos, and um, so Australia, Amer- oh, and the American Indians here, you know, we the American Indians, I think it was the Navajo or the Apache. Um, they they persistent or endurance hunted even um, even those the the fastest like mammal other than a cheetah what the hell is that pronghorn the pronghorn antelope? pronghorn antelopes they can run sixty one miles an hour mm-hmm. they're unreal and we and they were able to even chase down them in white tails or mule deer so really? it's practiced like this this endurance running you know was distributed around the world. Where you had high temperatures and big animals that were worth chasing, 
Hmm. You know, before we had bow, bow and arrows and guns. Well, guns. Geez. Yeah, that makes it easier. Yeah. Like a three hundred eight with a scope. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you don't even need to leave Let's, the pickup. I, I hardly. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Seth. Yeah, in Edmonds County, South Dakota, if you get out of the yep. truck, it's actually the game warden penalizes you. Yep. That's what I heard. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I heard that too. Rumor has it. So no, that's a, that was a that's the cost or our. You know, we are superb um, animals at dissipating heat, and uh, and other animals, you know, are don't have that same ability. Yeah, hmm. seems mostly. I mean, there's a lot of different reasons there, but when I was reading as well, like the the sweat gland thing really does separate us yeah, though, from sweat. really everything else. What a funny thing to be like. It's just such an rights. annoying thing now. Yeah. yeah, but the fact that how big of a difference it's made it seems so yeah trivial and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. something you try to avoid obviously now yeah so there's there's very we're learning so much more these days about um you know the metabolism um we talked in our last podcast about epigenetics and how they're heat shocking or they call it heat imprinting chick embryos mm -hmm. yeah. you know and you were talking to carrie jack at dinner tonight yeah um, some of her work on on paternal sperm, or I mean, has to be paternal, has to be sperm, but um, the male sperm um, carrying um, genetic code, special epigenetic code to progeny, you know, and um, so that's fascinating. We're learning about um, the effects of cooling pregnant mothers and helping their daughters. Mm -hmm. You know, two years later, I talked about that last week too, but if you cool dry cows that are pregnant, you know, they have a nine-month gestation in a cow just like a human, mm -hmm. the, the baby calf. And then when that calf's born, it has, it has to grow up for two years before you ever milk it, you know, and that's when things are going well, like 24 months of age. Mm -hmm. So you think about it. When that, when that embryonic calf was developing in its mother... If, it, if the mum got cooled, like with fans and water, um, and, and the sister in, in the pen with it, or in the, in the building next door, whatever, didn't get cooled, well, that calf, when it grew up two years later, you know, it milked like six kilograms or 15 pounds of milk a day more mm -hmm. than its cousin, you know, or even, its, I don't even know if it was clone work. It might even have been a clone sister, you know, out of the same... Mm -hmm. um, flushed from the same cow. It's just like staggering effects. Huh. How? And also the effects on that current cow too. So the, mm -hmm. the forever we've just seen the upfront cost, you know, of these production performance losses from the heat. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that one is even more reason for heat abatement strategies and why everyone is so, um, well, the industries in general are on top of it as far as they mm -hmm. don't have it mastered, but very, very aware of the very real economic and animal welfare impacts that it does have. Well, and we keep, you know, in every animal I can think of, whether it's sh from shrimp that we're feeding or salmon, you know, that we're feeding and farming and tilapia and pigs, of course, chicken and beef cattle and dairy cattle, and you fill in the gap in between. Everything we're doing, you know, every year or every five, every decade, you know, we're getting more from less, 
out of these animals. They're becoming more efficient metabolically. They're just super machines. Mm-hmm. So what it means is that there's metabolic heat being created in these animals. So the point I would like to make is um, is that it's only the 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 stress from controlling heat is only going to get more and more and more pronounced. You know, as we keep increasing mm-hmm. the yep. growth rates and the the speed of growth. So this problem is only, you know, is not going away, just even from the metabolic side, because Tommy might know the numbers, but as you turn over protein and protein synthesis and, and, and break down food more rapidly, it releases, you'll know some of that, Tommy, but mm-hmm. there is a, there's a huge a heat production with that. Is that it's just every, I, yeah, fair? energy can't be created or destroyed, right? And so mm-hmm. every biochemical reaction that takes place they're not 100% efficient so the more it so whatever let's say it's 90% efficient for the process that's supposed to be happening okay 10% of that's going to be lost as heat and so that's the metabolic heat load that dad's describing and so the higher the metabolism the more um, efficient and more productive that animal is Um, maybe not the more efficient but the more productive that animal is and the faster rate of gains that it has the more reactions that are taking place and therefore the higher basal heat load that that animal is going to have to get rid of. Um, so a good example of that is actually the Bos indicus versus Bos taurus cattle. And so um, we think of Angus be Bos taurus. What, is, what are these words referring like to? The, uh, I guess the uh, genus or the species. I can't even remember what you'd call it. The um, Genus. Is it genus? I, I think it probably so. is. Yeah, it's the ones that are always italicized when you look at animal oh, stuff. Oh, like the Latin name? <laughs> yeah. For, yeah, but I think it's genus. Um, but Indicus would primarily we think of um, Brahmin cattle, and then let's just say for whatever else can picture would be the Taurus, would be Angus. Um, so these Brahmin cattle, and you might want to even pull one up as we're talking, Jack. I don't know if you they can got picture a big them or hump not, on their back. Yeah, the like big hump, and they've ears. got the white skin, like, and they got the big like ears. India. Yes, yeah. or yeah. yes, correct. Um, and so... Um, but those animals, they're uh, they're made to survive in high temperature, hot environment, sure. um, and almost everything about them is better for the heat than Angus. And so they have thinner hides, which are able to dissipate heat. They have you know uh, more slick hair. They have white coats. They have smaller visceral organs, um, hmm. and then they have more surface area. They're more per volume, so they're able to get rid of their heat. Um, a lot better, um, but the now let's flip that to the other side about what Dad was mentioning earlier with rate of gain. They're also less efficient. From a, they're more efficient. They convert feed better, but they don't grow as fast. So they eat less and they gain less than um, Angus cattle would. Um, but they're better equipped for the environments they are in because of the heat. Um, so Angus on the other side would you know they'd grow fast. They might be slightly less. Um, feed efficient but they eat more and they gain more and but they just can't handle the heat um they've got the thicker coats and the they're black and all of those things and higher so, and higher uh, growth right correct creating yep. heat yeah i read in their their black coats can, from like solar you know radiant uh, heat from so, the sun solar heat so mm-hmm. everyone knows that if you've got a wear black clothes you know they'll be a lot hotter mm-hmm. than uh, white clothes or if you've got black automobile, you put your hand on a black, the hood of a black pickup truck, you know, you about fry an egg on it mm-hmm. versus a white one. 
And um, and that's because it captures this, the energy from the sun's rays more than white, I suppose, reflects it. Um, don't hold me to that either, but you get my point. The black being <laughs> black hotter. Hot. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a black-hided cattle, you know, because we have the Angus program certified, CAB uh-huh. certified, and I only wants black hides. So mm-hmm. it's a little bit, um, even though there's red Angus and, and you could breed them, I suppose, with time to be white Angus too, you know, using a little crisper. But um, the, uh, and I, I read some research with that, that, you know, with that direct sunlight on them, they, and you can do this with a with a, uh, a thermal imaging gun. We used to use them a lot at Zimpro, you know, and you put it on the cow and it reads the, reads the uh, infrared, I suppose, mm-hmm. and it'll tell you how hot it is, you know, um, like holding a speed gun. And the black surface, you know, it might be like 140 degrees, mm-hmm. 150 degrees. It's just incredible. And their, but their core body temperature is what matters. And I did read that they can be maybe two degrees Fahrenheit hotter at their core temperature than a white-coated animal. So, so it can have a well. Again, it argues for shade. You know, mm-hmm. like if you have shade, like within 20 minutes, those coats will drop. You know, they might drop 50 percent, or they might drop 20 percent of that heat load. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it can be extremely effective. You do see more and more of these, uh, just in general heat mitigation strategies going in but shade for sure there's mm-hmm. more and more producers that are putting them up because Seems not like even the, the performance one. part just from yeah like the the welfare, welfare start. yeah and it's, it's got to be it's all tied together right and imagine cost wise it's cheaper than putting in sprinkler and and they still would do that too yeah and so they'd spray their cattle spray the pens down and have shades and they'd just do it all because it ends a sure. lot. I think you know it seems like there's more and more of that happening, um, which is good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there are performance benefits when in the if the conditions are right, you can actually have that be paid for by better cattle performance. Do we worry about the opposite? Um, of, we've been talking about a lot, mo- mostly too warm, but we started mm-hmm. this conversation about being cold. Cold is that less of a concern? Because of uh, modern agriculture, like even just body heat of these animals in in areas together, I think of here again in Fargo. There's plenty of cattle, and we have some over Canada above us. It's miserably cold winters, but of course you hear about them dying, and usually in the big snow blizzards where they end up in ravines mm-hmm. full of snow. But, right, they suffocate. But and drown. yeah, which yeah. is not exactly the cold. But is cold stress a factor? Like we're talking about heat stress, or not so much? No, mm-hmm. it's a it's a big factor, but not so much. Um, but in certain environments, you know, certain countries, it's a big deal. Like um, you can imagine in New Zealand, you know, we have that island, uh, southern hemisphere, Pacific Ocean, cold. You know, we have a lot of cold um, rain. Cold and wet, wet, yeah. Yeah, and at night it cools off because of the mountains climate too. So we have a, a difficult climate. Um, for cold challenge, you know, whereas Australia has more of a heat challenge. But New Zealand and other countries like New Zealand, like Chile, mm-hmm. is a good another good example. Um, Ireland, Scotland, very and wet, even cold. England, wet is and cold. The even idea? the Dutch, you know, mm-hmm. um, the eeky freaky Dutch <laughs> have their share of problems. <laughs> Austin Powers <laughs> and um, the gold member. Anyway. Um, but even Where here, was I? 
they, we have it here too, though, right? Like yeah. in the- oh, I was going to tell you, back home, you know, it's very common. Our lambing season, you know, New Zealand is all seasonal because of the grass. And same with Ireland, Scotland, but in England, in the, in the Netherlands. But, um, you know, it was not uncommon when you have a stormy night, lose 50% of all the lambs that are <laughs> born that night. 50% wow. of them just dead. You just go around and pick them up. We call them slinkies and used to put them out at the end of the driveway. Every farm would have, you know, crates of dead lambs, piles of them at the end of their drive after the rainy, stormy night. And there's a truck drives around and gathers them all up and pays you like a dollar per lamb, dead lamb, um, for to make gloves out of them, you know, because their, their skin is really soft and <laughs> they have this very tiny, short wool. Yeah. Um, so there was a market for them, but it's horrendous when you think about it, like the animal welfare, the cost, um, 50, 60, on a bad night, you know, with the because of rain and yeah. wind together mm-hmm. is just a killer. And even reading, you know, like it's just a killer. It sucks all the heat out of them, like right now. And these little babies, the neonates, you know, they don't have any, like Tommy said, they don't have shivering. They they don't have any real body fat. They have some of this called BAT, brown adipose tissue. Mm-hmm. You lose it when you're older. Like you and I, we don't have, we don't have sh- you know, squat of it. But when you're little, you have like 6% of your body fat might be BAT, brown. And I think you were telling me about that, Tommy. It, it burn. You can burn that for, for heat. But Yeah, it's quite good for thermogenic. And there's actually quite a lot of, it's a new air, new, I guess say new, it's probably maybe 2010 is when it started getting looked into, but there's more and more that um, forever we thought that adults got rid of that BAT, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but there actually Which is, is what I just said. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Correct. And just like, don't hold me to anything. <laughs> but no, it's, I mean, in general it is right, but there's more than we thought. And I was right and, about the Dutch. Um, <laughs> you were right about that. Yeah. But that might even, it's. I was reading about that today, and I remember learning more about mm-hmm. this. So we don't lose VAT it stuff, all. but we don't lose it all, and it, it actually can be... We don't know... So back to the Arctic explorers. We don't know how they survive no. um, some of these trips, but there's some new research that suggests that, okay, part of um, adapting to the environment might be something to do with more brown adipose tissue and mm. um, and things like that. And so maybe that's yeah. um, part of their survival stories, the ones that actually were you predisposed bet. to having more access to VAT and the the heat that can come from that. Um, But yeah, back Hmm. to your point um, of Mm -hmm. babies. We were talking about this maybe before the episode started, but they can't shiver, but they have a lot of brown adipose tissue. And then in general, as you get older, it it does seem to go away. Mm -hmm. But um, it's a underappreciated part, I guess, of thermoregulation in adults too now is what it's starting to look like, that we might have Mm -hmm. more, some appreciable amounts. Mm. But that might be part of the adapt- adaptation part of what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, so the cold, there's like, I think there's a lot of young animal loss with cold, Jack, sure. versus hot heat. Yep. It maybe affects you know more of the older animals. So that's a big issue. And then also in, in climates, um, you know, again, with New Zealand grazing climates where they don't have buildings, you know, to protect them from wind and rain and, and mm-hmm. snow and cold. You know, they, they have to stand out in these pastures, you know, and sometimes in mud up to their knees. And um, and for weeks and weeks on end, months on end, and it's pretty freaking horrendous. This is for all you people who love grazing so much and think it's so, you know, pure and pristine. There's the, 
there's the other side of the coin, which is not so pretty, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, but it's very miserable for cattle and sheep that ha- you know, or even people that are trying to do pigs, outdoor pigs in these environments, mm-hmm. because the as soon as you're wet, you know, the evaporative or the conductivity of water is superb. It's like you know, water and steel. <laughs> you know, they'll just suck the heat right out of you. And then when you add wind to it. Mm. This is why you you know you you'll even know this yourself. Like when we're duck hunting, it's like you get wet hands when the water's cold, mm-hmm. and then if it's windy, like you can handle the cold water and some of the ice picking up decoys, you know, and it and your hands get cold for sure. But if the wind's blowing, yeah. like or even if you turn your hands into the wind, it's like they'll you'll start screaming with with cold pain, mm-hmm. like it's that fast. And so these animals that have to endure that, that's pretty hard on them. Or remember even ice skating when we were young. We'd mm-hmm. work, we'd be in a t-shirt by the end and it might be mm-hmm. 20 degrees out and we'd be sweaty. Yeah. So hot from actually playing hockey. And then you stop skating and like minute, two minutes later you're frozen popsicle. and ready yeah. to go home and shower. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you even throw off your gloves because you, you have so many sweat glands in your hands, you know. Actually yeah. the highest concentration is in our hands and our head. Um, and um, so you throw off, but anyway, that's why, again, you're, you're sweating and then you get the cold air on you and bam, you're in trouble. Hmm. So, yeah, um, that would be, and then you see feedlot cattle that are outside as well. Anyone who has to lay down on something cold, again, that's why the, the you know, the good people managing cattle, good farmers, you know, they'll use um, bedded bedded packs we call them mm-hmm. you know a lot of straw and they and bed all, for heat and bed for cold and bed for really? heat and for cold mm-hmm. really yeah yep mm-hmm. and um but it may you know imagine sitting on laying in wet mud just sucking the heat out of the cows um many times they won't even lay down it's because it's too cold for them and so they're standing but standing all the time you know is a terrible fatigue Mm-hmm. And there's a and there's a metabolic cost to all of this stress, um, but if you give them bedding, you know they'll lay they can lay down on that and create a barrier from losing all the heat. Mm-hmm. And they'll they'll be happy. They'll hell they can survive cattle in the in the winter can survive just ungodly temperatures yeah. if they're dry. Okay. It's, so they can dry. back to your original question. It is something that is it does have an effect. Yep. But the cons- level of concern aren't they don't seem to be as dire as, yeah. as heat stress. But the the shivering, for instance, you know that definitely is happening, and that's a energetic cost. And so there are, you know, um, performance implications as well from the cold. But um, it it sure seems to be that you know when heat we think of extreme temperature, that the heat would be the less preferable. Yeah. For at least livestock. Yeah, that's how it seems from a mm-hmm. just from my own perception opposite for the, humans though with bjorn lomberg always talking about that cold kills more people yeah. than, than heat by mm-hmm. 20 times something like that you know more. yeah but and that might be true for overall animals as well but from livestock production it sure seems like heat is where the, the yeah. bigger losses yeah. are coming from but for humans we're way better at getting rid of heat yeah. yes but we can't we can't you know, we can't protect against cold once you've, yeah. you know, you've, you've layered on as many clothes as you can. And well, and just the degree of, if you say what's the, like, optimal temperature for humans, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, 70 degrees. degrees. Yeah. The the extremes, 
towards the negative is so much further away from that that yeah. you know we're not going to get up to 190 degrees Fahrenheit, but we right. we might get down to negative 40, yeah. which is and we can't hibernate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hibernate's pretty. Cle- that's pretty funny piece of, or interesting. Not funny. It's hilarious. Hibernating. Hilarious. hilarious. Hibernating animals are hilarious. <laughs> But um, that's another really cool evolutionary tactic um, that that animals have evolved, you know, animals and insects. Let's just call them all animals, you know, to to survive cold is one of the primary things, you know, and bats and ground squirrels and bears and um, and many animals that will... um, Frogs hibernate? Yeah, some do. They're ectotherms and endotherms and ectotherms like frogs that hibernate or snakes they call that brumation i just learned that when i was doing some reading Hmm. they call it brumation but basically it's the same as hibernation the ability to to turn down your metabolism to almost zero Hmm. approaching zero so you conserve so typically the way hibernating animals do it is two ways they they either put on a ton of body fat. That's mm-hmm. like you don't want to be around grizzly bears, like bears come fall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, be around a salmon river while mm-hmm. they're trying to pack on fat because they'll, they'll have you for lunch too. Um, so they put on this. May, may, many animals I read, ground squirrels included, will double their body weight going into winter with fat. Mm. So 50% of their normal weight or 100% more goes in body fat. Even we're shooting ducks, you know. Yeah. They don't hibernate, but, um, it, you know, as you get closer to the mig- when they're ready to leave for Mexico or South America, mm-hmm. you know, the abdominal fat, and the especially in the divers, is huge. Yeah, that's right. So they put on the fat, and then they burn it. Now, I read they call this a torpor, T-O-R-P-O-R, is the metabolic state they get into. Many of the animals will go down to 5% of what's normal. <laughs> their metabolic rate, right? And then I read some animals. Here's a good example of a, a lemur, a dwarf lemur. They typically have 300 beats per minute, um, mm-hmm. breaths per minute, uh, beats per minute. That's of their heart. And like I run at about 60, 62. What do you run at? Your Probably roughly rate. that then too. Roughly. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and then they drop her down to less than six. <laughs> six 300? beats of your heart from <laughs> so 300. So they're just basically dead. Yeah, and then they're they're breathing, one breath per second. I suppose that might be similar to us, you know, or so. Um, and then they go down to one breath per ten minutes. That's crazy. You that's can't. And then many like of these animals, they can't find. I swear that I used to share a bedroom with Tommy, and I swear that's how he used to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. That's he would right. Hold his. You're like one breath. It's like oh Christ! You'd hold his breath out. and then just, just let it out. Quick hibernating every night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's like he was way ahead of it. It's like the. Were you hibernating or broom broomating? Broomation. I, I was broomating. Carrie <laughs> comments on that. My breathing is irregular it's, still. I guess so. It's so frustrating. It's hard to get used when to you're waiting for that. Bother me. Waiting for that exhale. <laughs> anyway, they can energy. They cool their bodies down to five to ten degrees, no problem. Um, three reasons for it. Was one is a cold weather strategy, like the cost of being alive and running around in six foot of snow, you know, trying to Indeed. trying to get a meal is too costly, so mm-hmm. they decide to sleep it off. Mm-hmm. And um, not bad, not a bad strategy. The second reason they did it is, you know, for famine. 
some animals can induce a torpor if they're in a famine and hmm. and survive, wait for the rain and the food to come. And then another one is another theory is to escape predation. Um, interestingly, like animals that are in hibernation don't smell; they don't give off any scent. Isn't that weird? <laughs> that is. I know. Certain, oh, and wow. um, so if you think about predation, the, the studies have shown they're five times less to be preyed on by a predator while they're hibernating than they are if they're moving around. So there's a theory that they, you know, to conserve their survival of their species, it's better to sleep half the year because that at least lowers your odds like by 500% of getting eaten. So wow. you, so ironic. So you You'd could, think that if you're asleep, it'd be so much easier to get eaten. But yeah, yeah, but they're hiding in nests. Maybe you know? the predators yeah. are also sleeping. Everyone's everything asleep. just hibernates. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so fascinating stuff. I read. I've been reading on hibernation. Like, and there's there'll be work that's done from these animals. Like they can create these um, like how you can maintain your brain even though you can't find a brain signal. Like that, you know, there's no detectable brain waves, but the brain sparks back to life. Some of them wake up to eat during hibernation. It's like, I really got a snack. It's like, I really got to get a Kit Kat bar or whatever. <laughs> they they can turn themselves on, become active, eat for 20 minutes, and then go right back into this torpor metabolic state. Wow. Really? Yeah. And then, um, so that's fascinating. And then they call something super cooling. Arctic ground squirrels, <laughs> they can be at mi- in their nest in the ground, can be m- measured at min- t- minus 18 degrees Celsius. So their bodies? Freezing their bodies? is at zero. Yeah, their How bodies. Are, so is their blood frozen? Their nest. Yeah, they, it's called super cooling. <laughs> you know, our body would all turn to crystals. I mean, anything liquid, mm-hmm. blood and water, it would all be ice and crystals, and we'd be dead just like, you know, El Pronto. Um, well, that's what frostbite. Why it's so painful? You, you, like what you had, Jack, when we were pheasant hunting in that time. That you get these, you're freezing, and you get the crystals forming in your, in your muscle and yeah. blood, and then then you go and put heat on them, like yeah. on the defroster. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. And the the screaming pain. Uh-huh. Anyway, I digress. They can produce these um, um, what you call antifreeze um, compounds in their blood. Really? Yep. Antifreeze molecules, they produce them in this in this um, hibernation period. And that that's why they can endure, you know, freezing temperatures without freezing. Wow. So now you think about it, like as scientists, you're finding all it's this confusing. stuff. Right. Is what, what, how could we use some of this technology, you know, for in medicine and treating patients that are, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, some of the stuff is just staggering what can be done with your metabolism and your physiology of your body and yet at the snap of fingers within like three minutes you're you're super active and alert back to firing your backs like you reboot the whole computer yeah so you imagine people with brain trauma you know serious injuries mm-hmm. and um and they've got to you know and and they've got to find a way that they can you know, really um, knock them out and have a low metabolic rate in their brain as well mm-hmm. so that you can have healing processes and things like this. Like, there'll be things here that are can be learned, okay. will be learned. Yeah. With babies in the, mm-hmm. like in the NICU, I know Josie oh. talked about 
cooling yeah. babies was a very common for very I don't I'm I they don't know but for very severe occurrences mm-hmm. they would have to cool them for <laughs> I think days you know really I don't know the temperatures but it was definitely mm-hmm. a, a in practice to cool them for that I think those reasons to allow them to mm. start to recover but really yeah she would obviously I'll, yeah she'd know a lot more they do the other it. side of it too do you know would they ever heat I don't know I I'll ask her after this and update it on the next episode but Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, no, there's so much to learn. Like, as we've said on many of these podcasts, it's like you think, you know, you know something about something and it's like, you know, don't be so sure. There's mm-hmm. so much else to learn. Yeah. You know, and um, and we're, you know, in animal agriculture, all the way from farming fish and insects all the way up to, you know, feeding them our mighty cattle, Um you know, there's things that, you know, the sciences are, 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 um, evolving, you know, and there will be things that we can transfer across, you know, because we're getting more and more tools. Mm-hmm. So we can take knowledge that we pull out of an octopus, you know, and we can apply that into someday into a, you know, into a, into cattle as mm-hmm. example. I mean, um, or we can take knowledge from these that we can learn from the biochem or whatever from these ground squirrels and apply it into hmm. our, you know, our our pig population. Like, a, it's a very exciting time to be an, a scientist. You know, like mm-hmm. well, like you, Tommy and Carrie, in this in agriculture, there's there's going to be so many amazing things that could be, you know, could be transformative. You mm-hmm. know, like. And we, again, we got a big job to do, you know. We have to basically produce double the amount of food, you know, in the next 50 years and um, and have a smaller fault footprint <laughs> yeah. while we do it, which which is great, right? So we can mm-hmm. have more duck hunting wetlands. And, and um, if temperatures actually rise. If, yeah, you know, if temperatures like rise, more more. We'll, we'll, be, we'll have tools to deal with that. And mm-hmm. if you believe the Russians, it's more likely temperatures will cool you know, from lack lack of solar activity. Um, but either way, you know, we're extremely adaptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so we'll produce more food. We'll do it with less land, especially if we can get rid of bloody ethanol and burning, you know, half the U.S. crop for to run through frickin' cars. But um, I digress. That's another subject. But... Um, <laughs> And then the third thing would be, you know, we can we can do have a better life for our animals that we're going to eat. Mm-hmm. You know, we can make them more comfortable. We can give them a richer life, um, and um, and we can nourish people better, you know, as well. Like get people eating more meat and eggs and milk, and um, and a, a little bit of little bit of grains and stuff is okay too, but. But um, not many. But no, no, keep that modest. <laughs> Just yeah, one no top bun on your burger. Yeah. So no, it's very. I think it's a really exciting time to be alive and to be engaged in this. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So here's to the Jeanette voyage, and to eating your boots, <laughs> and hopefully not having to. And they yeah. had to eat their belts and their coats. 
It's like you turn around, you know, if you <laughs> if you went to sleep and you and you and you and you're feeling a little bit drafty on your back, it's because your buddy just cut off like a foot section of your sealskin coat and he's eating it. <laughs> they were that freaking hungry. Better that than your leg. Yeah, better than that than your leg. So yeah. Very what do you good. Think? Good Very enough. Good. Yes, sir. Good Thank you, brothers. Me. Thank you. Thank Good you. on you.